The U.S. Supreme Court has struck down President Biden's plan to wipe out federal student loan debt for tens of millions of Americans. The president says the fight is not over. Our story is coming up on this Friday, June 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Brazil's high electoral court has found former President Jair Bolsonaro guilty of abusing his power and spreading lies. He'll be banned from running for political office until 2030. And a new documentary explores the lives and treatment of intersex people. People with variations in their sex characteristics are often targeted for very harmful medical interventions. We'll hear from the director of a featured activist in Everybody. Also ahead, Wall Street numbers and the forecast. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A sharply divided U.S. Supreme Court has thrown out the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program, arguing the president overstepped his authority in deciding to waive billions of dollars of debt with taxpayer money. Nebraska is applauding the decision. It led several states in challenging Biden's program. State Attorney General Mike Hilger says any criticism of the court is unfair. At the end of the day, it's there's a right way and wrong way of doing things. And the right way is to go through Congress and work through our elected branches to be able to try to uh, have some sort of proposal that would stand constitutional muster. The wrong way is to do it the way the Biden administration would do. Biden is expected to publicly address the high court's decision shortly. The U.S. Supreme Court has also ruled that the First Amendment protects business owners from having to engage in speech with which they disagree. The case involved a Colorado website designer who declined to create a wedding website for a same-sex couple. NPR's Jason DeRose reports religious liberty groups are at odds over the decision. The conservative public interest law firm Liberty Council calls the 6-3 ruling a huge win for free speech and one that prevails over government coercion. They praise the majority opinion for describing how the First Amendment protects individuals whose ideas some may find repugnant and that it precludes the government from forcing a speaker, in this case a website designer, to provide a service construed as speech. Meanwhile, the progressive group Americans United for the Separation of Church and State is denouncing the court's decision. The organization says everyone should have equal access to goods and services, regardless of who they love, who they are, or how they worship. Both groups filed amicus briefs in the case. Jason DeRose, NPR News. Russia's foreign minister is playing down last weekend's uprising by the Wagner mercenary against the country's top brass as an insignificant event. The comments coming as Kremlin officials continue to Try and limit the political fallout from the rebellion. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the Wagner Rebellion, which saw the mercenaries quickly seize a major southern Russian city and march on the capital last Saturday, was a minor event inflated by the West. Lavrov said Russia had emerged from the incident stronger and more resilient, adding if the West had doubts about that, it was, quote, their problem. In the wake of the Wagner Rebellion, the Kremlin has sought to present President Vladimir Putin as having been firmly in control despite offering the mercenaries amnesty in exchange for withdrawing their fighters. Putin has also argued the rebellion ultimately failed because Russian society and the country's security forces united behind the government in support of law and order. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. 
U.S. stocks end the day higher with the Dow up 285 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two of Massachusetts' leading advocates for the cancellation of student loan debt are urging President Biden to take action after the Supreme Court today struck down his forgiveness plan. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the president has other tools he can use to help students. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is urging the president and the education secretary to act immediately. Johanna Burke of Brighton is a 2021 graduate of Colgate University. She's having to pay off her loans will affect her immediate goals. That $10,000 turns into $20,000 like and that's I mean that's a car that's like the beginning of a down payment on a house like that's so many savings goals that I'm that much further from now. Governor Maura Healey says the state will support any federal effort to provide relief. She says Massachusetts is working to make higher education and job training more affordable and more accessible. Temporary shelters on Joint Base Cape Cod are near capacity just days after they open to families who are experiencing homelessness. The state says it's now looking for more options to help with the overflow of families, mostly immigrants. Governor Healy attributes the steady rise in shelter demand to the rising cost of housing and more immigrants relocating to Massachusetts. The chief of police in Dighton is on paid administrative leave after he was charged with securities fraud. The Dighton Select Board took the action last night against Chief Sean Cronin. Federal prosecutors in New York claim Cronin was tipped off about the sale of a pharmaceutical company before the deal was announced. Prosecutors say Cronin reaped $72,000 illegally by buying the stock cheaper, more cheaply, before the company was sold. The Friday long holiday weekend getaway is now underway. Traffic is heavy and slow on the expressway southbound, starting in Dorchester down to Braintree. There are no backups to report at the Sagamore and Bourne bridges heading on to Cape Cod. Mass Turnpike is slow westbound from Westboro to Auburn right now. Sumner Tunnel from East Boston to downtown will be open this weekend. It'll close next Wednesday, the 5th of July, for two months of renovations. In the forecast, pretty lovely out there right now. Mostly cloudy overnight tonight, about 65 for a low. Could be a lot of clouds around tomorrow, then gradually becoming sunny for the second half of the day. Highs near 80 degrees. And then for Sunday, chance of showers, mainly in the afternoon, otherwise mostly cloudy. Highs about 82. 81 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. By a 6-3 to three vote, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that President Biden does not have the power to erase the student loan debts of tens of millions of Americans. The opinion comes on the last day of the court's current term, and it will be unpacked, debated, and protested for the foreseeable future. But for federal student loan borrowers, the message is now clear. Their debts will not be erased, and by summer's end, they'll be expected to begin to repay them. NPR's Corey Turner is on the line. And Corey, let's start with exactly what the court said and why. Yeah, Juana, so this case was all about whether President Biden and his education secretary have the authority to erase between ten dollars and $20,000 in federal student loan debt per borrower for millions of borrowers. A nonpartisan estimate pegged that cost of the plan at more than $400 billion. The Biden administration argued Congress had passed a law in the wake of the 9-11 attacks called the HEROES Act 
that gave the education secretary pretty clear and broad power to modify or waive student loan rules in times of emergency. And they argued pandemics and emergency. Earlier today, though, six justices, the court's conservative supermajority, agreed with the plan's conservative critics, saying the Constitution is clear. Congress controls spending, not the president. I spoke with the Republican chair of the House Education Committee, Virginia Fox, who told me much the same, that if Congress wanted to do this kind of wholesale debt relief program, it would have. But President Biden can't. I think what he has done is totally illegal. I think it's unconstitutional. And so I believe that the Supreme Court is absolutely right. And Corey, what about the dissenting justices? What did they have to say? Yeah, so on the court itself, Justice Elena Kagan wrote the dissent and took issue with a few things. But interestingly, she really went after the court's conservative majority, saying the plaintiffs in this case had not demonstrated what is really fundamental in these legal circles, they, that they would be harmed by the student relief plan. Kagan writes, without having demonstrated that actual harm, quote, no proper party is before the court and a court acting like a court would have said as much and stopped. And I can tell you, Juana, Democrats and borrower advocates are all crying foul, accusing the court of its own kind of activism. Here's Persis Yu. She's with the Student Borrower Protection Center. It's really tragic that student loan borrowers have been stuck in this position as political pawns and now are victims to a politicized court that is willing to jeopardize their financial security for political gain. And Corey, President Biden has just begun speaking about this ruling. How has he been responding to all of this? Yeah, in a tweet earlier, he called the decision unthinkable, and he said the fight isn't over. Though it's it's not clear, Juana, the court left him with much room for some other kind of large-scale debt relief option. Legal experts I've spoken with told me they thought this HEROES Act pathway was probably the best possibility of success for the administration. Um, Biden did begin his remarks a few minutes ago acknowledging that borrowers might feel angry. He said he does too. He also mentioned one thing that would help current and future borrowers, and that's a new repayment plan they're working on that would limit monthly payments to 5% of a borrower's discretionary income, and it would lead to cancellation after 20 years. This would be an incredibly generous plan, though it is still in the regulatory phase. It's possible they'll wanna to try to fast track this to get it out there soon after the repayment pause ends. Uh, it's hard to know. And Corey, what about the people impacted by this, people who are now looking at having to pay back those student loans? What have you heard from them? Yeah, I mean, obviously, one I've been talking with borrowers all throughout this payment pause, but I want to highlight one in particular I've been talking to quite a bit off and on for several months now. His name is Kurt Panton. He's got a new baby uh, and lots of old student debt. And a different decision from the court today would have zeroed out his remaining $20,000 balance. Here he is. I feel like it's back to business as usual. What else can I do? go back to paying the student loan that I have been paying for 20 plus years. You know, Kurt's challenge, as with so many borrowers, is accruing interest just makes it really hard to keep up, even as he has been steady as a clock making his payments. And I think you can hear it in his voice. It's really worth noting, Juana, whatever you think of today's decision or President Biden's plan politically or philosophically, student loan debt is absolutely weighing on a lot of people. And today, this is going to be a hard day for many of them. NPR's Corey Turner, thank you.
You're welcome. France is bracing for a weekend of unrest. People have been rioting over the killing of a 17-year-old youth of Algerian descent. The death during a traffic stop in a Paris suburb has revived grievances about policing and race relations. Anger has rippled across France, which has seen three nights of violence. People have set cars and buildings on fire. Nearly 1,000 people have been arrested and 45,000 police have been mobilized. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley joins us from France. And Eleanor, remind us of the tragic events leading to these protests. Yeah, Ari, well, a young guy named Niall M., they're not giving his last name, in the suburb city of Nanterre, was stopped at a routine traffic stop and he got shot. And the police originally said that he tried to drive at them with his car, but a video quickly surfaced showing the police officer firing point-blank range into the car. So that changed everything. The police has, man, has now been arrested and has been charged with voluntary homicide. He's apologized to the family, but it has set off a huge wave of anger across France. We've had three nights of rioting. You know, as you said, cars and buildings set on fire. There have been 875 arrests, 250 police officers injured. Major events have been canceled. Uh, this evening, the interior minister called for a nationwide halt to all bus and tram service from 9 o'clock this evening. What has the response been from President Emmanuel Macron and other government leaders? Well, Macron has unequivocally condemned the policeman's actions. Even Francis Hardline pro-law and order interior minister said he was stunned by the video. Um, but Macron said it is not a reason to wreck public buildings like town halls and schools and police stations. Today, Macron cut short a meeting at the EU in Brussels to return to Paris where he held a crisis meeting. Here he is speaking. He says the social networks also bear responsibility. Some of the rioters are very young, Ari, as young as 14, yet they're very well organized. Macron said apps like TikTok and Snapchat have not only been helping them organize, but have been instilling them with a sort of militaristic purpose. And he said these, a lot of these young people, it's as if they're living out their intoxication with video games in the real streets. He also called on parents to take responsibility for their kids and keep them home. Uh, the far right has been calling on Macron to declare a state of emergency. He's not done that, but tonight uh, the French government announced 45,000 more police on the streets. And today, the UN called on France to address deep issues of racism and discrimination in its law enforcement, though the French government has rejected those accusations and says they're unfounded. What has the family of Nahel said about events? Well, Nahel's mother, Munya, whose name is, last name is not given either, she actually did an interview on television. She says she doesn't blame the system, the law enforcement as a whole for her son's death. She says she blames one man. Here she is. She says, I blame one man who saw a young Arab boy and wanted to kill him. Nahel's funeral will be held tomorrow. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley, thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. This week, a 13-year-old Australian girl was the talk of the skateboarding world. On Tuesday, Arissa True made history when she became the first female skater to land a 720. That is two full rotations in the air. And she did it at an event called Tony Hawk's Vert Alert, named after the skateboarding legend who incidentally pioneered the 720. And he was there to cheer her on. Here with us now is Kristen Emmeling. She's executive director of the nonprofit organization Skate Like a Girl. Kristen, welcome to All Things Considered. What's up? 
So, Kristen, we should point out you were also a professional skateboarder. What were you thinking? What was your reaction when you saw Arissa True land that 720? Yeah, so I'll just start by saying I'm a professional skateboarder in a totally opposite discipline called street skateboarding. So pretty much anything done on a vert ramp is amazing. It's very scary to even drop in on a vert ramp. So my first reaction was just amazement. And it also just kind of took me back to like the first time I saw Tony Hawk land his 900. I saw that on TV as a little kid. And, you know, a couple years after that, I started skateboarding. So it got me really hyped just thinking that, you know, kids around the world are going to be able to see this and see this amazing feat. Okay. For people who have never put their feet on a skateboard before, can you explain exactly what a 720 is? And like, how hard is it to land one? Yeah. So I I think the easiest way to understand a 720 is that it's just two 360s. So this trick is performed on a vert ramp that kind of sends you up on one side and you have to come back down. Um, Shout out gravity. Um, (laughs) But this trick in particular uh, has you coming into it backwards. So basically she dropped in on one side of the ramp, did an air on the opposite side, rode backwards back to where she started and spun around two times to re-enter the ramp facing forward. Okay, let me see if I get this straight. Arissa True landed the 720, and she also did it with the pressure of Tony Hawk himself watching. Like, come on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I actually saw a clip of him kind of like coaching her a little bit on the sidelines, which kind of reminded me of just how cool skateboarding is that we want to kind of see each other win. It's less competitive, I'd say, than other sports. And and yeah, it's just amazing to do that in front of the guy that invented it. It's pretty cool. No kidding. I mean, looking more broadly, though, how are milestones like this significant, particularly for girls and women in the world of skateboarding? Yeah. So I think it's another reminder that like girls and other non-traditional athletes can do incredible things when we give them the access the resources, the facilities, the coaches. And just to remember that like the skill level gaps that we see in sports is, you know, less so based on like the one gender being better than another at a sport, but just more related to the lack of access and therefore lower participation by certain genders of different sports. And yeah, super excited to see what the future holds. Oh yeah, we're going to have to keep watching. Kristen Abeling is a pro skateboarder and the executive director of the nonprofit organization Skate Like a Girl. Kristen, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. On this last trading day for the first half of the year, some big gains today. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly one and a quarter percent. And the Nasdaq gained nearly one and a half percent to notch its best start to a year in four decades. The Steamship Authority has received its first fleet of electric buses. The three EVs will transport customers to ferry terminals in Hyannis and Woods Hole. The buses are expected to start operating in Falmouth and Hyannis in mid-July. The authority plans to acquire four more electric buses later this year. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel, mybioheat.com. Tonight, the Red Sox will be north of the border for a three-game road series in Toronto. It'll be James Paxton against Jose Barrios. Red Sox have lost their last five games. That's their longest skid in a six-game losing since a six-game losing streak last September. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon.
I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 81 degrees in Boston should be down around 65 overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Then for tomorrow, clouds in the morning, some sunshine by the afternoon, temperatures right about 80 degrees. Look for clouds coming in on Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Since the day he was born, Sean Saifa-Wall's identity has been under a microscope. We live in a society that's so binary. So as an intersex person, where do I fit? Wall is one of three intersex activists featured in director Julie Cohen's new documentary called Every Body. It looks at the lives and treatment of people whose bodies don't fit into the male-female sex binary. Here's a clip from the film of Wald talking with River Gallo and Alicia Roth-Weigel. They told my mom, you have a child that we feel is abnormal. And this body was a problem that needed to be fixed. Fixed, fixed and that I should never tell anyone about it. Well, I'm joined now by Sean Seifa-Wall and Julie Cohen. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Saifa, I want to start with you, because I think there might be a lot of people who don't totally understand what the word intersex actually means. How would you define it? Yeah, so I like to think of intersex as sex characteristics. And, you know, when I say sex characteristics, I mean hormones like testosterone or estrogen, uh, chromosomes like XX, XY, X, XXY, internal organs like ovaries, testes, ovotestes, and external organs like penis, vagina. So we all have sex characteristics. Um, but um, people with variations in their sex characteristics are often targeted by the medical establishment and by practitioners for um what sometimes are very harmful medical interventions. Right. And we're going to talk about that. But Julie, what led you to make this documentary about the lives of intersex people? Yeah, well, you know, taking a look at the intersex activist movement right now, this is just a blooming, blossoming movement of activists. It's so due to get attention and to, you know, for us all to be considering the things that they're fighting for. Well, Saifa, I want to return to you because I want to hear more about your story. You were born and raised in the Bronx. At what moment in your life did you start to fully understand that you were intersex? So although I was, you know, born with a small phallus and undescended testes, I was assigned female at birth, and they were hoping that my mom would do really invasive medical surgery to sort of align my body with sort of social expectations of female, right? And even though they had done the surgery, I still didn't necessarily feel more like a girl. I didn't fit in. So I went to college, and one night I'm sort of at my student job, and I type in 
testicular feminization syndrome. And then this updated term, androgenous sensitivity syndrome, came up. And I sort of looked at the, the characteristics of AIS, and I was literally in shock because I was like, that's me. That's my body. And all of the doctors who I had spoken to or interacted with up until that point did not tell me the truth about my body. Can you tell us when you were born how the doctor advised your mother? So when I was born, they made the recommendation to do a gonadectomy, but they also wanted to do a genital surgery. And the pediatric endocrinology department at Columbia Presbyterian literally hounded my mom for two weeks wanting to do surgery. And just something about it didn't feel right to my mom. And she's like, why are they so persistent about doing the surgery? And so my mom just raised me just to be me. Well, eventually, your mother did consent to surgery because she was told falsely by these doctors that your gonads were cancerous? Yeah. So um, when I was around 11 or 12, I, when I went to the doctor, he was just like, this surgery should have been done in infancy. And then he also told my mom, these gonads are cancerous and they have to be removed. And when my mom heard cancer, mm -hmm. she consented to the procedure being done. One of the most surprising things I learned in this documentary is that starting in like the 1960s, there was really only one voice, one authority shaping people's understanding of what it meant to be intersex, at least in the Western world. And that quote unquote authority was Dr. John Money. Julie, can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Money's role in shaping not only just the medical community's understanding, but the whole public's understanding of intersex people? Yeah, Dr. Money was a psychologist and sex researcher at Johns Hopkins. He had a theory that a child's gender was malleable until age two and a half or three and claimed that he had proved this theory with the case of two twin boys, one of whom was badly injured in a failed circumcision. Um, the baby under Dr. Money's direction was raised as a girl and castrated. And Dr. Money did a study in which Money claimed that the boy was successfully raised as a girl. That wasn't true, but the study spread all around the country and then was picked up on by all kinds of journals and medical textbooks. That study was debunked, but the debunking didn't spread widely enough. And there are still hospitals in the U.S where surgeries are done based on this unproven and, in fact, debunked science. Right. This study perpetuated the practice of performing non-consensual procedures right. on other children. Right. Saifa, we saw in this documentary that it wasn't only you, like Alicia and River, all had non-consensual surgeries performed to, quote unquote, correct their anatomy, to align more closely with being binary. How common is that experience among intersex people to have these non-consensual procedures done on them? You know, I think intersex experiences are not monolithic. I think for a long time, at least in the U.S., the people who have been most vocal are the people who have been harmed. But that does not represent the breadth of experiences of people born with intersex variations. 
How did understanding that you are intersex, how did that affect your own understanding of your gender identity? Yeah, I think for me, it wasn't a question of like gender identity. I think probably what sort of switched something on for me was when I was sort of 24, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, I had a friend at the time who was um, female to male, transgender. And he asked me a question. He was like, can you see yourself aging as an older woman? And I was like, no. And I think that was sort of the start of me sort of being like, well, what do I need to do to sort of feel more of myself? Um, And I think that's when I started to seek out hormones and surgery that I would do for myself, right? To affirm myself. That sort of confirmed how I felt inside. That was activist Sean Seifawal and Julie Cohen, director of the new documentary called Every Body. It comes out today. Thank you to both of you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Elsa. Thanks, Elsa. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, Malcolm Alexander has been fighting for financial compensation after he spent more than three decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And in June, he won part of the battle. We'll follow up on his case. Again, that's in about 20 minutes. Red Sox are out on a quick road trip. They play three games in Toronto, with the first starting at 7.07 tonight. James Paxton does the pitching honors against Jose Barrios. And in the forecast, still pretty sticky out there. Should be partly cloudy tonight, back in the mid-60s. Weekend is looking mixed. Tomorrow, overcast to start before sun gradually breaks through. Highs about 80. Then it should cloud up again for Sunday. This time, the clouds should win out. Maybe a few showers. Highs both weekend days hovering around 80. It's 4.30. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? And I just found it coming out of my mouth. I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. Hell yeah. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Supreme Court today released two major decisions. In one, it ruled that the Biden administration overstepped its authority when it tried to cancel or reduce some $400 billion in student loans for millions of Americans. Natalia Abrams is president of Student Debt Crisis Center. We have surveyed borrowers time and time again through the COVID pandemic, and the majority of borrowers say they're not ever going to be able to make a payment again. The pandemic, you know, pause has been a lifeline for so many student loan borrowers. 
President Biden blasted Republicans over the issue, and he says he's changing the income-driven repayment plan, reducing the maximum borrowers need to pay from 10 percent of disposable income down to 5 percent. In another decision, the justices ruled that a Christian graphic artist can refuse to work with same-sex couples, a defeat for LGBTQ rights. And four families are suing to block Georgia's restrictions on gender-affirming care for transgender children. The new rules are set to take effect tomorrow. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE has more. The families filed the lawsuit in federal court in the Northern District of Georgia. Senate Bill 140 would prohibit minors from receiving hormone replacement therapy or gender-affirming surgery, with few exceptions. Republicans pushed through the legislation this spring over the protests of most Democrats and amid a wave of bills around the country focused on transgender children. Similar laws have been blocked by courts in a half dozen or so other states. Georgia's law is somewhat narrower than these states in that it does not ban puberty blockers, but the plaintiffs say the law is still unconstitutional. The state is expected to defend it in court. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 285 points. That's up about eight-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. People driving out of Boston for the long holiday weekend are hitting backups now in the expressway and on the Mass Turnpike. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation wants commuters to factor in the Sumner Tunnel closure next week in their 4th of July plans. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez explains people returning to the city next week could be taken by surprise. Repair work on the Sumner Tunnel into Boston begins July 5th. MassDOT's Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says drivers heading home from 4th of July celebrations may be impacted as crews get to work. One minute past midnight, they will roll in, they'll uh, initiate the closure, they'll move their crews, their equipment and their materials into the tunnel. Gulliver has advice for drivers hoping to avoid congestion. I'd say if you're out for the 4th of July at wherever you're going, make sure you're home before midnight. The Sumner will be closed through the end of August. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The Lynn Ferry is up and running again. The MBTA officials say that it's a good option for commuters on the North Shore as the Sumner Tunnel shuts down for the summer starting next week. There was a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the ferry's relaunch today. Lynn resident Sunil Gulab says the ferry makes his commute manageable. It was just pleasurable, comfortable. The boat is new. The boat is clean. It's quicker than if you're in traffic. It does drop you off right next to a tea sub. The Lynn Ferry will have 10 trips each weekday from the Blossom Street Pier in Lynn to Long Wharf in Boston. The ride will take 30 minutes each way. We've got more reaction now to the Supreme Court's decision to strike down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. 39-year-old Megan Walsh of Dorchester still has $20,000 to pay off her graduate student loans. She was counting on the Biden program to take care of the balance. I've seen the impact that this has had on on my generation of friends. A lot of us were the first people in our family to go to college. Um, We didn't have family support. And, you know, it's really stunted our ability to make different choices about our lives. Governor Maura Healey says the state will continue to make higher ed in the state more affordable. A Fall River police officer is facing a charge of child pornography in connection with allegations that he had an inappropriate relationship with a 17-year-old. The police department said today that it put Officer Michael Morin under arrest. The Bristol County DA's office says Morin pleaded not guilty to possession of child pornography. The officer has been placed on administrative leave. The forecast is coming up. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. A nice close to the day today. We should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight down in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clouds to start, sunshine later in the day. Then for Sunday, clouds and maybe some summer showers around 80 degrees both days. 81 in Boston. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. There are some tenacious myths around Asian American students in this country that they have to get higher SAT scores than other students to get into college, that they shouldn't even identify their race on applications. And yesterday, the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action, finding that two universities discriminated against white and Asian American students in the admissions process. It's a decision that might seem to validate those myths. So we turn now to Janelle Wong for some insight. She is a professor of Asian American Studies at the University of Maryland, who has dedicated her research to breaking down and understanding Asian American demographic information. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Juana. So Janelle, I want to start by talking about these myths, which both kind of stem from the big one, the model minority myth, that for some reason, Asian people are smarter and work harder. And it's often associated with being quiet and introverted. Does your research show that perception having an impact on college admissions decisions? So this lawsuit makes a lot out of the fact that the small numbers of Asian American applications that the plaintiff's team, that is the group that sued Harvard, alleging racial discrimination, that that team reviewed contained comments reinforcing the model minority stereotype, portraying Asian Americans as passive nerds, lacking leadership, with phrases on the applications like very quiet and quiet and strong. But very quiet and quiet and strong were comments that appeared on the files of Black, Latino, and white applicant files as well. This wasn't an Asian American thing. So the truth is that the lower courts found no evidence of racial discrimination against Asian Americans. The group Students for Fair Admissions brought the case before the court and centered several Asian students when they presented it. This group was created by Edward Blum, who is a longtime opponent of affirmative action. And... I want to acknowledge in this conversation up front that the category Asian American encompasses people from a huge variety of backgrounds. And I want to ask you, what does your work show about how Asian Americans from different countries feel about affirmative action itself? Well, it's actually one of the most remarkable and consistent findings over the last 10 years that Asian Americans across different national origins. That includes Korean Americans, Filipino Americans, Indian Americans, and other groups support affirmative action. 
You wrote on Twitter back in 2018 arguing that race-conscious admissions are good for Asian Americans. And I'm going to quote your tweet here. This is not about Harvard and elite institutions. This is about whether Asian Americans will defend racial justice more broadly or be a weapon against it. And I want to know a little bit more about what you meant by that weaponization. There's no doubt that Asian Americans face racial discrimination. I've certainly been told to go back to where I came from. But it's really, um, I think, a very dangerous time when Asian Americans, and especially a false narrative about an Asian American penalty, is being used to target this essential tool, affirmative action, that helps to open up doors to diversity and opportunities for education. That is, Asian Americans can provide cover to conservatives to further their white supremacist agenda. Well, I mean, I want to ask you, there's a reaction that some have had that this case reinforces the idea that Asian people are anti-Black or that they enjoy proximity to whiteness that grants them some version of almost white privilege. How do you respond to those reactions? So one of the things that has happened is that Asian Americans themselves have internalized the model minority stereotype. So many are falling into this trap and are promoting stereotypes that Black and Latino students are less academically worthy than Asian Americans. And so this is, I think, an instance where not all Asian Americans, not even a majority of Asian Americans, but too many Asian Americans have been complicit with not only white supremacy, but profound anti-Black stereotypes in the U.S. Janelle Wong directs the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Maryland. Janelle, thank you. Thank you so much. Now we have an update to a story that we brought you back in December about a man named Malcolm Alexander. I want to go bungee jumping. (laughs) Go on. I want to do that, too. I haven't done that yet, but I want to do that, too. I think you guys should go together. That conversation was between Malcolm Alexander and a man named Frederick Clay. They are not extreme sports aficionados. They wanted to bungee jump to feel freedom. I also did hang gliding, too. What? That's nice. Wow. And it gave me, it it made me feel like I had a, a bird's eye view of the world looking down and it, it made me feel free, hmm. totally free. Both men spent decades in prison, falsely convicted of crimes they did not commit. Both were ultimately exonerated and released. And when we brought them together for a conversation late last year, Clay had already received financial compensation for the time he'd spent in prison, a million dollars from the state of Massachusetts. But Alexander was still fighting for compensation in Louisiana. In December, he told me that receiving compensation was about more than money. But he said money would help him pay for emergencies or fixes around the house. And he could build a new house for his dog, In. That name is short for Innocence. I built a dog house, and I must have didn't build it too sturdy because we just had that storm up here, Ina, and it blew the dog house apart. Well, last week, Alexander got a call he'd been waiting for. His lawyer told him a state appellate court had just ruled in his favor. 
Now he's entitled to nearly half a million dollars from the state. Which I will say brought tears to my eyes because it was like finally saying, you know, the nightmare is over with. You know, you innocent have finally been proven. The state of Louisiana has an opportunity to appeal the court's decision, so Alexander won't receive the money just yet. Still, he feels like this is the apology he's been waiting for. I could have took a plea bargain and been out of the institution. You know, never would have spent as much time in that that I did, but it would have been like admitting to something that I didn't do. As to what he will do, Alexander's been doing a lot of thinking about that. He says he has plans to retire and open his own business doing handiwork. He wants to take his family out for a meal that he can afford. And as for the doghouse? Well, that's the first thing on the agenda. She will be getting a brick house. Just like I said, I am innocent. And she is named after me being innocent. And for that, I live in a brick house. She needs to live in a brick house. He hasn't met up with Fred Clay yet, but the two men have been in touch, hoping to step into bungee harnesses and feel pure freedom soon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today, a court in Brazil ruled that an ex-president will be banned from politics for the next eight years for abusing his power and spreading lies. The ruling against the former far-right leader Jair Bolsonaro deals a major blow to his political career and to his nationalist movement in the South American nation. Bolsonaro says he's being censored and vows to fight on. NPR's Kerry Khan has the latest from Rio de Janeiro. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. What are the details of the court case that led to this verdict today? Well, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who lost his bid for re-election last year, was being tried in Brazil's Supreme Electoral Court, not a criminal court. Bolsonaro, just as a reminder, was president the past the previous four years. He's a far-right nationalist who promoted gun rights. He dismantled environmental protections in the Amazon, and he dismissed COVID protections and vaccines. In the case um, now, seven justices proceeded over the trial over the last three, over three days. And in a vote of five to two, they found Bolsonaro guilty of the charges which revolved around a speech he gave when he was president last year. In that speech, he summoned ambassadors to his residence and just railed against Brazil's electronic voting system, saying it was prone to fraud. And he also disparaged the country's electoral system. Uh, the majority of the justice on the court today said that was an abuse of his power and they banned him for running for any political office for the next eight years, essentially until 2030. He'll be 75 then. And the two judges that sided with Bolsonaro, what did they say about the case and the sentence? They said that the case against him was not that serious, not serious enough to render such a harsh ban of keeping him out of politics. One said that the former president's speech might have been bad form, but that Bolsonaro has a right to voice his opinion. So from the majority who ruled against Bolsonaro, I want to play you this one point made by Alexander de Moraes. He's um, also a Supreme Court justice, and he hailed the court's ban as a clear repudiation of far-right hate speech. Populismo é renascido a partir da he says this was a rejection of populism reborn from the flames of hateful speech, anti-democratic speech that promotes heinous disinformation. 
And tell us more about how, Bol- how Bolsonaro responded today. He had quite a lot to say. Uh, he ha- had like an impromptu press conference he gave in a neighboring space. And he talked for a while and he was very angry. He too went on about what this rule means for uh, being the opposition now in a democratic con- country. And he just called this a ban a censorship. You can hear him just going on. He says that there is no democracy. Democracy doesn't exist without freedom of expression. He says he was just expressing his opinion to a foreign audience and called the proceedings a political witch hunt. And so what does this eight-year ban mean for the future of not only Bolsonaro, but his far-right movement, which is still strong? It's hard to say. Um, Right now, there's a substantial part of the electric that still backs him, including the powerful evangelical bloc in the country. Some analysts say the right will suffer without him, but others say that Bolsonaro and his backers are too far to the right for the majority of Brazil's conservatives. And that's what Daniela Campanella, who's a political politics professor, sorry, at the FGV University thinks. It's just going to be a good thing to have someone on the right that's going to be able to emerge without the presence of Bolsonaro, that meets their agenda without the radicalism of Bolsonaro, which was not good for anyone. She's, and Bolsonaro says he will appeal today's decision. NPR's Kerry Kahn in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you. You're welcome, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled not just on student loans today, but on the First Amendment. We'll hear why the court says businesses can indeed refuse certain customers. That's coming up in about 15 minutes. Cities and towns across Massachusetts are getting ready for their annual Fourth of July parades. Wakefield has a huge parade that's taken place for decades, and residents have made a bit of a game out of claiming their spot along the route earlier every year, as in today. People have already put portable chairs on the sidewalk of Main Street. Town Administrator Steve Mayo says there will be thousands of chairs set out by Tuesday morning. We really enjoy it. We love it. People tie them together and people tend to go back to the same spots every year. I'll be putting my chairs out uh, probably, you know, Sunday. I was thinking Sunday or Monday I'll put them out. But if I see that my spot is being taken, I will go out a little earlier. (laughs) The Wakefield Parade starts at 5 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash SSW. When you make art for a long period of time, you learn to appreciate the beginnings because they led you to where you are now. Jenny Lewis takes stock and talks about a very personal and optimistic new album. Also, affirmative action, protests in France, and lots more. Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. Have you ever felt misunderstood, wanted to be something other than how people see you or think you should be seen? Those are some of the big questions and ideas at the heart of the new animated film, Nimona. At the outset, the night Ballister Boldheart is framed with the murder of the queen, and sometime after that, 
he's accosted in his hiding place Whoa, by a strange pink-haired girl. Who are you? The name's Nimona. Uh, and how did you... Whoa, yeah! Sick arm! Uh, did it bleed a lot? What? Did they let you keep the old one? No. Now, Nimona is not there okay. to arrest him. So She's actually there for a job. job. What job? To be your sidekick. You know, to help you do whatever it takes to get revenge on the cold, cruel world that rejected you, shall we pillage a village? Her qualifications? She can turn into anything and anybody she wants to. And it comes in handy when she teams up with Boldheart to figure out who exactly killed the queen. The movie is based on a graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson, and N.D. joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So we have gotten a bit of the idea of who Nimona is, but, but describe her for the audience. What's she like? Nimona is this character who's just, she is kind of everything. She always is going against the grain, um, and she's all over the place. The other characters really have to kind of just struggle to keep up with her. She's always on, always like thinking one step ahead of every other character. You've said before that at its heart, she's a power fantasy. What did you mean by that? So I've always been like really drawn to shapeshifters. You know, I I especially relate to the idea of... um, having your body really not be the entire story of who you are. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And Nimona represents that. She is not constrained to any one body. She really controls how the world sees her, but she also knows who she is. And so a lot of her struggle through this story is getting the world to recognize her the way she wants to be recognized. There are just a ton of changes from the initial graphic novel, but but I want to focus on things that are the same because you uh, you didn't want them to change Nimona at all. You wanted to keep this this force of nature, this slightly out of control feel to her. Why was that so important? I always knew that things were going to change about the story and that they should change because I made the comic that I set out to make. And now it was going to be something new. It was going to do its own little shapeshift, if you will, and um, become a whole new thing. But Nimona to me really felt like what it is about this story that makes it special. It has a lot of familiar elements of heroes, villains, monsters. It's a medieval world, but it's set in the future with some tropes associated with both of those kind of extremes. I love um, that juxtaposition so much that that you're talking about a kingdom and, and knights and fantasy, but there's also flying cars whizzing around and, and this, you know, Blade Runner type feel to the kingdom. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's very, it honestly feels very true to our world today where it's like, We have all this advanced technology, but in some ways, you know, we're still kind of bound by this medieval way of thinking. I want to talk about the relationship between two characters, Ballister Boldheart and and Ambrosius Goldenloin. And by the way, Ambrosius Goldenloin, one of the best names I have ever come across. It is such a fun name to say. Why, thank you. (laughs) Uh, But but Ballister and Ambrosius, uh, they're in a relationship with each other before the queen is is murdered. Uh, They were implicitly queer in the comic, but the movie makes their relationship very straightforward, very obvious. It's one of the first things you learn about the two of them. Why was that important? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example of um, things that uh, you change adapting a story. Um, They start out, they are together, they love each other. The whole movie is them trying to get back to each other. And so you really have to sell that as soon as possible in order to make their arcs in the movie make sense and fall into place. And, you know, how hard it is for the two of them to be on opposite sides of this conflict, forced into the role of the hero and the villain when both of them feel, you know, pretty conflicted about that. And and that's such a key part of so many stories, uh, an important relationship and, and circumstances that put tension into it. You know, one reason I ask that is because, as you are so well aware, this movie is coming out at a time in which so many ways the LGBTQ community is being targeted by politicians, books and films are being attacked just for showing that that people exist, that relationships like this one exist. 
What is it like to tell stories in this climate for you? You know, I think I get the question a lot about how aware I was, especially of um, the themes around gender in this story at the time that I was initially making that webcomic. And the truth is that I was like many years out from being able to put the pieces together about my own identity and my own gender. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there was a vein in that comic. You know, I I come from a very um, conservative and religious background that I found very constraining growing up. And that's at the heart of what this story is. And it's in reaction to that very rigid and very prescriptive kind of uh, worldview. You know, we are seeing this very reactionary backlash honestly, this moral panic about people like me who are just living our lives. Uh, I think that that is at the heart of where this story came from. But it's also something I think that kind of gained a new meaning in the telling of this story. This started out as as such a personal project for you. Has it been hard to adapt it first into a graphic novel and, and then into this movie? I mean, on one hand, you're sharing it with the world. On the other hand, suddenly dozens and hundreds of people are involved in something that was just you sitting down and drawing at one point. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, just a truly wild ride for me. Even the graphic novel being adapted from the webcomic, you know, I really assumed that it would have a much smaller audience. And that's when I started realizing that these characters in this world were kind of taking on a life of their own, and they were starting to evolve. And that was also the experience of making this movie. It was certainly a very tumultuous journey getting there. There was a, you know, a very real time where it didn't seem like it was going to happen at all. Yeah. And the movie kind of was officially dead for a while. Um, but, you know, you really can't keep Nimona down. The, the movie makes that clear. Yeah. I really do believe that this character has taken on a life of her own. She is bigger than the character that I came up with, you know, in my tiny little sub-basement apartment at 19 years old. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that... They wish they would have had this character in this movie when they were growing up, and I know that I do. Um, And so I'm I'm really excited to see what shape she takes on next. What would you say to to any kids or or even adults watching Nimona who who relate to these themes of of looking for belonging, of, of knowing you're something different than you're being pegged as, and especially in this moment in time? You can love someone and you can accept someone without having to understand every single thing about them. So Mm -hmm. that's something I think that, like, uh, I personally face a lot with people not understanding my identity or why I would do something when, like, maybe it seems like it would be more strategic to blend in and not stand out as much in a world that can be dangerous. Um, But ultimately... You don't have to understand everything right away. All you have to do is know that it is important or that person wouldn't be doing it. So I think it really is about this almost like radical acceptance of seeing someone not necessarily for all that they are with a character like Nimona, who is almost impossible to know every part of her, but telling them that you will be there for them. Um, it means the world to me specifically when, when someone is willing to do that. Um, and I really hope that this movie leads to those conversations. But also it's just like a really fun movie. I hope that's coming across. It has so much love in it and so much heart. And it's just a really, really great time. That's N.D. Stevenson, who wrote the graphic novel Nimona. The Netflix adaptation of Nimona is out now. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, 
Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summertime. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app right now. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Look for temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clouds to start. Sunshine moving in later. And then on Sunday, should have a lot of clouds around, some summer showers as well. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court rules Monday in favor of a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, but the 7-2 decision was on the narrowest of grounds and left unresolved whether business owners have a free speech right to refuse to sell goods and services to same-sex couples. This is All Things Considered. Also coming up, Democrats in Congress want President Biden to lift sanctions on Venezuela. The sanctions were aimed at President Nicolas Maduro, who Washington accuses of corruption and election rigging. There were folks that were convinced, for example, that with the sanctions, that that would be the answer and that Maduro would be gone by now. And that hasn't happened. Three House chairmen are demanding that more than a dozen officials from the Justice Department, the IRS and Secret Service recount details of their investigation of President Biden's son, Hunter. These stories and much more are still to come. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A sharply divided Supreme Court has effectively struck down President Biden's $400 billion student loan forgiveness plan. When the administration overstepped its authority, the court's decision means student buyers, borrowers rather, begin paying their loans back starting in October. Biden spoke out today against the decision, saying the fight's not over. I believe the court's decision to strike down my student debt relief program was a mistake, was wrong. I'm not going to stop fighting to deliver borrowers what they need particularly those at the bottom end of the economic scale. The president says his administration will pursue new unspecified relief through the Higher Education Act. will also put in place a 12-month on-ramp to keep people out of default as they readjust to payments. Biden blamed Republicans for the failure to enact a key election promise. Republican-led states challenged the plan, saying it disadvantaged those who chose not to go to college or paid their loans. Indiana's Supreme Court has ruled a near-total abortion ban passed by lawmakers last summer does not violate the state constitution. NPR Sarah McCammon reports. Indiana's legislature was the first to pass a law banning abortion after the U.S. Supreme Court's decision last summer that overturned Roe v. Wade. It prohibits abortion with narrow exceptions for rape and incest, medical emergencies, and lethal fetal abnormalities. 
Planned Parenthood and other providers sued to block the law under Indiana's Constitution. Now, Indiana's state Supreme Court says the state's Constitution generally protects abortion rights only when a pregnant woman's life or health are seriously at risk. A separate legal challenge from the ACLU, which argues the law violates the religious freedom of people who believe abortion access is morally necessary in certain situations, is still underway. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. French President Emmanuel Macron has cut short a trip to return to France to deal with a growing crisis there over the killing of a 17-year-old motorist by police. NPR's Elder Beardsley reports there have been three nights of rioting, looting, and car burning across France by angry youths who accuse the police of racism. Speaking at a crisis meeting, Macron denounced those using the 17-year-old's death to attack public buildings like schools, town halls, and police stations. But pent-up anger over perceived systemic racism within the French police is exploding across the country. Still, the mother of the 17-year-old, Nael, who was shot at point-blank range during a routine traffic stop, said in an interview with France 5 Television she does not blame the system. It's not the system, said Munya, whose last name is also being withheld. I blame one man. He saw a young Arab guy and he wanted to kill him. The UN called on France to use this moment to address racism and racial discrimination in law enforcement. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Paris. A strong end of the week in the quarter on Wall Street. The Dow was up 285 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Two of the state's leading advocates on the cancellation of student loan debt are urging President Biden to take action after the Supreme Court today struck down the president's forgiveness plan. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the president has more tools he can use to help students. Congressman Anna Presley is urging the president and education secretary to act immediately. And Governor Maura Healey says the state will support any federal effort to provide relief. She says the state is working to make higher ed and job training more affordable and accessible. Some state leaders are weighing in on the Supreme Court's decision that business owners have the right to refuse to serve same-sex couples if it violates the owner's religious beliefs. Governor Healy, who is openly gay, says the ruling is another example of the high court's callous disregard for the well-being of communities that need protection. Attorney General Andrea Campbell says LGBTQ plus Americans deserve to be protected from discrimination. Inmates at the Bristol County House of Correction will pay 12 percent less for everyday items such as toiletries, snacks and clothing. Bristol County Sheriff Paul Hero today announced a reduction of commissary prices for inmates. His predecessor, Sheriff Thomas Hodgson, came under scrutiny for saving money by hiking fees on inmates, including for the cost of telephone calls. The head of the legal group that represents people incarcerated in Massachusetts is leaving her post to work for the state attorney general. In an email to colleagues, Liz Mato said she will step down this fall as head of the Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts. She will become a senior advisor and the head of the attorney general's civil rights division. And scaffolding is going up on the Esplanade in Boston in preparation for the Boston Pop. 4th of July concert and fireworks. State Police Colonel John Mon says that the law enforcement is prepared for hundreds of thousands of spectators who will turn out on Tuesday. If you're coming here to have a good time, you're going to be able to do that. If you're coming here to, to look for trouble, you're probably going to find it. Uh, so, But in the past, this has been a wonderful crowd of, uh, of family fun and celebration. 
The Pops July 4th concert is scheduled to begin at 8 o'clock. Fireworks go off at 10.30. In the forecast, still kind of humid out there. Partly cloudy overnight tonight, back in the mid-60s. And then tomorrow, overcast. Sunshine gradually breaking through, though. Highs about 80. Clouding up again for Sunday. Highs again around 80. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's one of the largest displacement crises in the world, according to the UN. Thousands of people leaving Venezuela daily. Now the Biden administration is facing new pressure to act on the matter from within the president's own party. More on what's behind that push in just a few moments. But first, we go to the U.S. Supreme Court and a major decision affecting LGBTQ rights. Today, the court carved out a major exception to public accommodation laws, laws that in most states bar discrimination based on sexual orientation. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. By a 6-3 to three vote, the court sided with Lori Smith, a Colorado web designer who's opposed to same-sex marriage. She challenged the state's public accommodations law, claiming that by requiring her to serve everyone equally, the state was unconstitutionally enlisting her in creating a message she opposes. Today, the Supreme Court agreed with her. Writing for the conservative majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch drew a distinction between discrimination based on a person's status, her gender, race, etc., and discrimination based on her message. If there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, he said, it is that the government may not interfere with a marketplace of ideas. When a state law collides with the Constitution, he added, the Constitution prevails. The decision was limited because much of what might have been contested about the facts in the case was stipulated, namely that Smith intends to work with couples to produce a customized final story of their websites using her words and original artwork. Given those facts, Gorsuch said, Smith qualifies for constitutional protection. He acknowledged that today's decision may result in, quote, misguided, even hurtful conduct. But he said tolerance, not coercion, is our nation's answer. The First Amendment, he said, envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. In a blistering dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that Lori Smith's objection amounts to discrimination against the status of same-sex sex couples, discrimination because of who they are. The lessons of the history of public accommodations laws is that in a free and democratic society, there can be no social castes, she said. For the promise of freedom is an empty one if the government is powerless to assure that a dollar in the hands of one person will purchase the same thing as a dollar in the hands of another. Just what today's decision means for the future is unclear. Jenny Pizer is chief legal officer for Lambda Legal, and she called the decision limited to those people who do specialized custom work. So this decision says the laws apply effectively to everyone, but doesn't apply to this type of business. And I think there's a, an enormous question moving forward. Well, how is this going to be applied to the range of other types of goods and services? Because an enormous number of goods and services, 
involves some tailoring, some customizing, and arguably some artistry, depending on the eye of the beholder. So what about a cemetery that refuses to engrave a headstone with the words beloved partner? Or a web designer asked to simply announce the time and place for a same-sex wedding? Or a tailor who refuses to make a suit for a same-sex groom? Law professor Michael McConnell is director of the Stanford University Center for Constitutional Law. One of the few things I've actually written for publication about this issue focused upon the case of a dressmaker who refused to create a custom gown for Melania Trump for the inauguration. And virtually everyone interviewed for that Washington Post story thought it was extremely important that this dress designer was able to refuse to create a gown for the Trump inauguration. Uh, And I don't think a tailor is different from a dressmaker. Brigham Young University professor Brett Scharf acknowledges that today's opinion leaves many questions unanswered. Justice Gorsuch, in his majority opinion, characterizes these as a, quote, sea of hypotheticals. What he had to say is that these cases are not this case. University of Virginia law professor Douglas Laycock says that at the margins, there likely will be lots of cases. But the core of this is you can't be compelled to uh, invest your creative talents in creating speech that you fundamentally disagree with. That's a pretty clear category. Yale law professor Bill Eskridge, who's written extensively about gay rights, calls today's decision incoherent. Nonetheless, he says, My prediction is that we will not see a lot of these cases for two reasons. On the one hand, most religious people including uh, fundamentalist people, do not want to discriminate against LGBTQ persons, particularly in their commercial businesses. And on the other hand, most LGBTQ persons do not want to bring suit. Lambda Legal's Jenny Pizer is not so sanguine. The danger here is the message and the understanding that this court majority consistently favors those who seek to discriminate. And that sends a particularly alarming message to members of communities who are under sustained attack. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. President Joe Biden is under pressure from members of his own party to change his approach to Venezuela. A group of House Democrats sent Biden a letter last week saying, in effect, sanctions are hurting Venezuelan people more than the government of Nicolas Maduro, and it's time to change course. Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he was one of the letter's authors. Welcome to All Things Considered. Uh, Great to be with you. Sanctions have been in place against Venezuela for a few years now. So what made you and the others who signed this letter think now is the moment to let up sanctions? Well, I think we've got to keep in mind what our goal is with sanctions. Anytime we're sanctioning leaders in a country or sectors in a country, what we want to see for Venezuela is freedom, democracy, and opportunity for the people. And even with these very heavy sanctions that were put in place by the Trump administration, that has not happened. And Maduro is still in power. 
and there are millions of Venezuelans who are living in destitution and poverty, who are giving up hope, and millions who are also fleeing the country, including tens of thousands, if not more, to the United States. The balancing act that you're describing between the pressure on civilians and pressure on the government is one that comes up all the time in debates about sanctions. I mean, Afghanistan is a very similar example. What do you think makes Venezuela different from some of these other cases? No, you're right. Uh, you know, I don't think it's one of those things where you can say we 100 percent know how this is going to turn out. Uh, there were folks that were con convinced, for example, that with the sanctions uh, and with Guaido uh, making his move in Venezuela. The opposition leader that the U.S. recognized, right? That's right. You know, that that would be the answer and that Maduro would be gone by now. And that hasn't happened. And so what we're saying is that we ought to look at being willing to ease some of those sanctions, particularly sectoral sanctions. Uh, if Maduro is willing to allow for free and fair elections, there is the opposition groups known as the unitary platform uh, who are, in fact, uh, advocating for this, who are OK with this and who understand what everybody should want is for Venezuelans to be able to choose their own leader, uh, but also to be living in a country where there's actually opportunity, uh, where people can get a job, where they can feed their families and where they don't feel like they're forced to to leave the country. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said a year ago that the U.S. would review its sanction policies in response to constructive steps from the regime. You're saying allowing free and fair elections should be enough to qualify. How much space do you think there is between your position and the administration's position right now? Have you heard back from them? Well, I think that's an essential part of it, and that's the base part of it. But we're also looking at things like respecting human rights, allowing for protest and, and political opposition, which Maduro, as you know, had tried to essentially stomp out. Uh, so free and fair elections are the cornerstone, but there are other important human rights and political rights elements as well. And I think Maduro, you know, from what I've gleaned, and I could be wrong, but I think that he himself is desperate. And he himself is looking for a way out of a nation that he has helped run to the ground. And so with both sides willing to talk, I think that the United States should take the lead, because if not, what we do is the longer this goes on, the more you're going to see Venezuela run to the arms of China, run to the arms of Russia and other countries where democracy is not necessarily important to them and human rights are not as important to them. And, and I don't want to see that. So how do you respond to the argument that relaxing sanctions without any significant change from the regime is in effect rewarding bad behavior? Well, I would say I'm not asking for insignificant things. I'm asking for significant concessions on pro-democracy, respect for democratic institutions, for free and fair elections, respect for human rights and political rights that's more than just words, coming together with Maduro sitting across the table with the opposition and actually being able to come to agreements on these things. And again, that is what the Venezuelan opposition is asking for at this point. It's Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas, a Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Fox News has settled a lawsuit brought by an ex-producer who was a key figure in Tucker Carlson's ouster and the $787 million settlement of a major defamation case this spring. David Folkenflik's report is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Immerse yourself in the creations of eight international artists working with living plants. Then visit Isabella's blooming courtyard, GardnerMuseum.org. Some big gains on this last trading day for the first half of the year. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent today. S&P picked up nearly one and a quarter percent, and the Nasdaq gained nearly one and a half percent to notch its best start to a year in four decades. The state is launching some initiatives designed to expand opportunities for disabled and LGBTQ-owned businesses. For the first time, it will include those businesses in a program that links the state's needs and diversified business. The state is also creating an interactive map to help state and municipal officials identify certain diverse business partners. Marketplace starts at 6.30. The time now is 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. You can listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summertime. Just tap to listen live and catch up on everything that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Democrats are beginning to court voters ahead of the 2024 election, and in some states like North Carolina, they're focusing on rural voters. Biden lost North Carolina by just under 75,000 votes in 2020. And as NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, Democrats there still have a lot of work to do to gain a competitive edge. Democrats did something surprising in 2022. They performed better than expected in swing states nationwide during the midterm elections, in part thanks to turnout by rural voters, even if Democratic candidates did not always win. For years, left-leaning organizers have tried to reach voters beyond urban areas, but rural voters say they have been left behind. Building back trust takes time, and so my big thing is we have to start somewhere and we need to start now. That's Anderson Clayton. She's North Carolina's Democratic Party chair. She's also 25, making her the youngest party chair in the country. Main Street's not only this busy, it's funny today. Walking around her hometown of Roxborough, Clayton said her goal is to focus on young voters and rural communities she believes the party has ignored for far too long. So far, she has been a cheerleader for the Biden administration and connecting rural issues to recent investments in infrastructure. It's the first time in 50 years that an administration has invested in a community that looks like where I'm from. And I think that's just kind of beautiful, honestly. There's changing demographics to consider. 
Recent 2020 census data found rural areas are diversifying. And we have a huge population of rural people who we've yet to tap into that are our voters and that we've got to go after this year and chase. And that's exactly what I plan to do. But the GOP is not fully off the hook. Even young Republicans who plan on helping their party keep the wins among rural voters want to see more from candidates on innovation. Where are the Republicans talking about the fact that we need to be going over to nuclear energy? Where are the Republicans that are, are talking about we need to be more involved in space? That's Cody Miller. The 19-year-old is the chairman of the North Carolina Federation of College Republicans. And when Republicans hear Democrats want to court rural voters, they say good luck. They're going to experience a lot of backlash in the same way that, you know, Republicans try, try to go to cities and the cities don't really like it. I think that the rural communities are not going to like that Democrats go and, and try to do stuff there. North Carolina hasn't gone blue in a presidential election in 15 years. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Raleigh, North Carolina. Today is the last day here at NPR for one of our most familiar voices. What's left of the World Trade Center is a smoking, smoldering pile of twisted beams and girders, with small sections of the building's skin still standing, poking at crazy angles into the sky. On you the know the voice. Pile, it's Melissa Block. And she is leaving NPR after 38 years. She was an NPR booker and producer and editor and correspondent. And for more than 12 years, she hosted this program. Over those decades, she has brought our listeners stories of joy. Watch and listen to how the home plate umpire call strikes. That's Brian Onora. And there's no mistaking Jim Joyce's call. It could wake the dead. Oh, let's hear that again. <laughs> Along the way, you may have also noticed Melissa is especially fond of what you might call critter stories. So we are surrounded by these tiny golden lion tamarins. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think there are a couple more. And Melissa has also carved out space for stories of struggle and human tragedy. At 4.40 in the afternoon, nine hours after this day of waiting began, a worker comes out with news. A worker just came out and said they had found the bodies of a child and two old people. And Mrs. Fush asked, was he a boy of about two? And the worker nodded, yes. One of the stories Melissa Block is perhaps most known for here at NPR. And Melissa's here in the studio with me now. Hi, my friend. Good to see you. That tape we just heard, that was you reporting in China right after the earthquake in 2008? That's right. In Sichuan province, um, all things considered, had sent a team there. Obviously, nobody anticipates they're going to be in an earthquake, but that was one of the stories that um, that we did when we were there. And, um, you know, the scope of something like that is really hard to fathom. Tens of thousands of people killed. And I would say that of all the stories that I've done over the years, that is certainly one that, that changed me in really profound ways. Yeah, I can see it on your face as you listen mm -hmm. to the tape all these years later. I, I do want to note, you have carved out in these last years here at NPR a beat that didn't even exist <laughs> um, for most of your career, focusing on gender and um, especially on the lives of transgender youth. What have you learned from those people as you've talked to them along the way? Yeah, talking to trans trans kids and their families. You know, 
trans rights issues have become such a, a political football over the past few years. And when you talk to trans kids and their families, they just want to be left alone. You know, a lot of the bills that are being sponsored in Republican-led legislatures are, are, all, are framed as protecting kids or saving kids. And parents will say, look, we want the exact same thing. We are protecting our kids, and we just want to let them be kids. Yeah. So why are you leaving? Oh, <laughs> so hard to think about that. 38 years is a really long time. It's been wonderful. I mean, I've gotten to travel all over the world and all over the country and have people let me into their lives in really profound ways. And that's a huge gift. Um, I do think, you know, like with many people, the years of COVID isolation took a toll. Um, the death of my mom last year, those things make you, yeah. oh, thanks. They just focus your mind and make you wonder, am I really doing what I need to be doing? And am, am I where I need to be right now? And it's yeah. bittersweet, but I think it's the right time. I mean, look back over those 38 years. You have seen so much change in our industry and here at NPR. What stands out? Uh, everything, right? I mean, the the size of this network, which has hugely expanded since I started, um, the scope of what we do and, and what we cover, technology in every aspect of what we do. I mean, when I think back, it seems like a miracle that we ever got a radio program on the air every day. <laughs> there were days uh, when it was when it was not clear it was exactly. going to land. Um, and I guess the one thing I would say is that when, the thing that I hope doesn't change here is the focus that this network has always had on forging human connections, on the primacy of sound as we tell our stories, on the power of the human voice. And um, I just I just really hope we don't lose sight of that. It's hard for me not to say we, but I hope y'all, as you would say, don't lose sight of that. You will always be part of the we that Thank is you. NPR and hear here to that message. Will you share what's next? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I imagine you have noticed that I'm, I'm a pretty big gardener and birder. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there will be quite a bit more time for that and travel. Um, there will be work, I'm assuming, of some form. I don't know quite what yet. You know, I'm thinking of a, a wonderful comment I heard recently from someone who was about to move across the country, and he was really apprehensive about it. And somebody told him, sometimes it's a great thing to be repotted. So I think that's how I'm thinking about this, Mary Louise, not as, not as retirement, but as repotting. Repotting. <laughs> well, may, may your roots be deep and the soil rich. <laughs> oh, thank you. This is our colleague, my former co-host here on All Things Considered, Melissa Block, speaking with us on her last day here at NPR. Thanks, Mary Louise. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, the question of whether Hunter Biden, the president's son, received preferential treatment from the Justice Department. That's coming up in about 10 minutes. The 2023 Boston Harbor Fest begins today. Three, two, one. Happy birthday, America! Harborfest kicked off this afternoon at Downtown Crossing to the sounds of the Massachusetts 215th Army Band. five-day festival is considered one of the largest Independence Day celebrations in the U.S. Harborfest offers food and music along with historic reenactments. It all builds to the 4th of July Boston Pops Firework Extravaganza at the Esplanade Tuesday night. This is 90.9 WBUR, a special treat high in the sky this weekend. We'll have a full moon Sunday night into Monday, and it's going to be a super moon. That's when the moon is full and the moon's orbit is the closest it can be to Earth. It's 5.30. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? And I just found it coming out of my mouth. I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. Hell <laughs> <Hell> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Supreme Court today sided with a Colorado website designer who refused to do business with a same-sex couple. The case pitted equal access laws against First Amendment issues. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has more. The decision was a 6-3 split. The conservative majority said the Colorado website designer is protected by the First Amendment right to free speech and cannot be forced to provide services she disagrees with. Designer Lori Smith believes marriage is between a man and a woman. Justice Neil Gorsuch said Colorado cannot force Smith to provide her services to a gay couple. Liberal justices strongly dissented. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said the court has allowed a protected class to be discriminated against. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Some 340,000 UPS workers are preparing to strike. From member station WABE, Jim Burris reports contract talks have deteriorated to the point that the union officials say a walkout is imminent. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters calls UPS's latest offering appalling. Union officials have given the Atlanta-based shipping giant a Friday deadline to propose its last, best, and final offer. But Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien remains skeptical, saying the largest single employer strike in American history now appears inevitable. UPS says it's offered significant changes to its initial proposal and that consensus requires give and take from both sides. UPS Teamsters last went on strike in 1997, crippling the company, whose employee count was about half what it is now. For NPR News, I'm Jim Burris in Atlanta. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 285 points, the Nasdaq up 196. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The pollution from wildfires in Canada is expanding across most of the Bay State. The State Department of Environmental Protection says the air will be dangerous for people in sensitive groups. People are being urged to limit time outdoors and watch for shortness of breath or coughing. It is posting an air quality alert now to begin tonight at midnight and run through tomorrow. The only exception is the Cape Cod and the islands area. Temporary shelters on Joint Base Cape Cod are nearing capacity just days after they open to families who are experiencing homelessness. The state says it's now looking for more options to help with the overflow of families, mostly immigrants. Governor Maura Healy attributes the steady rise in shelter demand to the rising cost of housing and more immigrants relocating to the state. Two of Massachusetts' leading advocates for the cancellation of student loan debt are urging President Biden to take action after the Supreme Court today struck down the president's forgiveness plan. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says the president has more tools he can use to help students. Congresswoman Anna Presley is urging Biden and the education secretary to act immediately. Johanna Burke of Brighton is a 2021 graduate of Colgate University. She says after today's decision, paying off her loans will affect her immediate goals. That $10,000 turns into $20,000. Like, and that's, I mean, that's a car. That's like the beginning of a down payment on a house. Like, that's so many savings goals that I'm that much further from now. 
Governor Healy says the state will support any federal effort to provide relief. The chief of police in Dighton is on paid administrative leave after he was charged with securities fraud. The Dighton Select Board took action last night against Chief Sean Cronin. Federal prosecutors in New York claim Cronin was tipped off about the sale of a pharmaceutical company before the deal was announced. Prosecutors say Cronin reaped $72,000 illegally by buying the cheaper stock before the company was sold. The MBTA wants to let North Shore commuters know that the Lynn Ferry is a pretty good option when the Summer Tunnel shuts down next Wednesday. It held a ribbon-cutting ceremony today for the ferry. The Lynn Ferry will operate 10 trips a day on weekdays between Blossom Street Pier in Lynn and Long Wharf in Boston. The Sumner that connects East Boston to the downtown area will be closed for two months for renovations. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Alt eStore, providing Massachusetts with solar power, battery backup systems, and advice for solar installers and do-it-yourselfers. AltEStore.com. Red Sox are up in Toronto for the first time this season. They start up a three-game series tonight at 7.07. James Paxton pitching for Boston. And the forecast still pretty humid, partly cloudy overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-60s. The weekend is looking mixed. Tomorrow, overcast to start, then sunshine gradually breaking through. Highs about 80. Should cloud up again for Sunday, though. This time, the clouds should win out. Maybe a few showers, high temperatures both Saturday and Sunday, hovering around 80. 79 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Fox News has paid a former producer $12 million to settle a workplace discrimination lawsuit. That producer's complaints contributed to the ouster of Tucker Carlson this spring. We'll have more on that settlement in just a few minutes. But first, three House chairmen are demanding that more than a dozen officials from the Justice Department, the IRS, and Secret Service testify about details of their investigation of Hunter Biden, the president's son. This comes after Hunter Biden pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and a firearm offense, a plea agreement that Republicans are calling a sweetheart deal. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has an update. Hey. Hey, Juana. So, Deirdre, what do House Republicans want to learn here? In-house Republicans say Hunter Biden has used his father's name to enrich himself, and investigating him has really been an ongoing issue that Republican leaders in the House say is part of their oversight responsibilities. This week, the chairs of the House Judiciary Oversight and Ways and Means Committees put out a joint statement saying that the Hunter Biden plea deal, quote, showed politicization and misconduct at the Justice Department and the IRS. Their stepped-up efforts now come after a whistleblower told one of these committees that the investigation of the president's son was slow-walked and that Hunter Biden received preferential treatment from prosecutors. Now these committee's chairs, as you said, want a dozen officials, including David Weiss. He's the prosecutor in the Hunter Biden case, who was actually nominated by President Trump, to come in for interviews. Weiss says his investigation is uh, still ongoing. Typically, justice officials don't talk to Congress while they have an open investigation. But we'll see. The chairman gave a July 13th deadline 
for these officials to arrange their interviews. Now, you mentioned a whistleblower who spoke to one of the congressional committees. Who was that person? What did they have to say? Gary Shapley is his name. He was this whistleblower. He was a 14-year veteran IRS investigator. His investigation found that Hunter Biden failed to pay more than $2 million in taxes over several years. And he says there's evidence to char- there was evidence to charge felony tax ev- uh, evasion. Shapley also released a WhatsApp message from 2017 uh, when Joe Biden was vice president, from Hunter Biden to a Chinese business associate claiming his father was involved in the deal, in, in a, a business deal. The president was asked earlier about this week, and he insisted he didn't know anything about it. I talked to Utah Republican uh, Blake Moore. He's a member of the House Ways and Means Committee, and he's saying he just wants more transparency. I want to make sure that the whistleblower testimony and that aspects of that are clearly taken into consideration or proof that they were taken into consideration to get to this particular plea deal. Moore did acknowledge there's no evidence he's seen of anything illegal when it comes to the president's conduct. We should also say when it comes to this Hunter Biden plea deal, many former prosecutors said it was essentially in line uh, with what others who have have had similar legal issues have been charged with. So, Deirdre, is this debate here related to the push from Speaker Kevin McCarthy to possibly impeach Attorney General Merrick Garland? It is. I mean, the speaker is saying if the Justice Department doesn't cooperate and hand over what they're asking for by early July, they're going to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. Garland has said that the investigator, the prosecutor, David Weiss, has full authority to conduct his probe and that he's never talked to him. A lot of moderate Republicans think before the House moves to impeach any cabinet member or the president, they need to build a case. Here's Mike Garcia, a California Republican I talked to, talking about moving forward with impeachment. It's a very emotional thing. Some people want the instant gratification of of a pound of flesh, but there's a process through which we go by. And it protects them as much as it protects the people they don't like. So so that that's what we're trying to do. And there's a lot of pressure from the base to move forward on impeachment. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thank you. Thanks, Juana. Fox News has paid $12 million to settle a workplace discrimination lawsuit brought by a former producer. Her name is Abby Grossberg. Her legal claims were key to Fox's ouster of its primetime star Tucker Carlson and its settlement of an even bigger lawsuit over election fraud claims broadcast in 2020. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is covering this story. And David, um, tell us who Abby Grossberg is and why she sued Fox. Sure. Abby Grossberg was a top booker for Maria Bartiromo, booker being a person who basically lands guests for a show, uh, before she joined Tucker Carlson's show uh, in September of last year. She said, look, she wasn't naive. She knew that Tucker was often accused, probably rightly, of saying discriminatory, biased, racist, sexist things on the air, but thought working for the show would be different. She she alleged in her suit she found actually rampant sexism and anti-Semitism, bigotry, hostility. She spoke earlier this spring on Morning Edition about the response she got from a supervisor at Fox News when she complained about all that. And his response to me was, we're just following Tucker's tone. That's Tucker's tone. And I do really believe that it all trickles down from the top. And what you see on air is who Tucker Carlson really is. Carlson, for his part, told me he didn't know Grossberg at all. He was working remotely the whole time, which is true, but she participated in a lot of team video calls and other discussions. Fox launched an investigation and ousted him in spring. And what role did her lawsuit play in the other bigger one, the defamation case over election fraud falsehoods? 
Well, in some ways, it may play a pretty big role in this this settlement and the size of it. She had originally filed another suit since dismissed in which she accused Fox's legal team of trying to make her the scapegoat in this huge case brought by a voting technology company called Dominion Voting Systems, which had been accused on a number of accounts by Fox guests and even hosts of essentially rigging the election for Joe Biden in 2020. She said she felt pressured to lie in sworn depositions to protect Fox stars and executives uh, and that she was going to be presented as the one who had booked a, a Trump ally to go on Maria Bartiromo's show and spread some of these lies. $12 million seems like a lot of money to settle this type of complaint. Any clues as to why Fox chose this path? Well, Fox was taking a beating uh, by the judge who was overseeing that Dominion law. Uh, that case. And then she announced that she had dozens of audio tapes. Uh, And suddenly Fox started being a lot more complimentary of her. At the time, it said that it had investigated. It said that her claims of being pressured by lawyers were false. Uh, But it sort of backed away from some of that rhetoric. She and her legal team dribbled some of them out in media reports. They indicated that there were a lot more damning revelations about the handling of these allegations of of election fraud. Why does that matter? Well, there's another huge defamation suit from a second voting tech company called Smartmatic for $2.7 billion. That's still ahead. And Fox, you know, it wants to kind of clear the decks. It's had a bad history of workplace issues, had to settle, you know, costed over $200 million to settle a series of sexual harassment uh, allegations and suits and, and related claims. Fox right now wants to move forward. And in fact, that's what it said in settling this case today. NPR's David Falkenflick, thank you. You bet. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Some student loan borrowers in Massachusetts reacted with a mix of frustration and disappointment to today's Supreme Court decision that strikes down the Biden administration's student debt forgiveness program. WBUR's Carrie Young has details. On the last day of the court's term, there was some anxiety leading up to Friday's ruling. Johanna Burke, a Brighton resident with about $12,000 of student loans still left to pay, says she was holding out hope that the program would be upheld. But given the Supreme Court's like recent decisions um, and the makeup of the Supreme Court, I think that I kind of saw this coming. Biden's debt forgiveness plan would have canceled most of Burke's debt. For John Vanderhyde of Worcester, who still owes well over $100,000, the program wouldn't have made too much of a dent. Still, it would have helped lower his monthly student loan payments, which would have added more wiggle room to his budget. For both me and many of the people I know, one of the biggest things it does is it actually like really impacts housing um, and our capacity to consider purchasing and our capacity to make some of the higher rent payments work. Many borrowers who work in the nonprofit sector say their next hope for relief is the Public Service Student Loan Forgiveness Program. But Megan Walsh, a Dorchester resident with about $20,000 of student debt, says she's been struggling to navigate that system. 
they've miscategorized my employment several times. I've had to be on the phone with them several times. It feels like they're just giving you the runaround to make it as hard as possible to get these loans forgiven. Massachusetts lawmakers are urging the White House to keep pushing for relief. And Governor Mara Healey said she will continue state efforts to make higher education more affordable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. In Dorchester, a group of residents is reenacting in a new play how their community fought for a green space and won. It's called Dorchester Weather, and it's being performed this evening. WBR's Paula Mara says the playwright wants the work to inspire people to advocate for climate justice. Welcome to Dorchester Weather, a play about climate and change. At the corner of Norfolk and Woodrow, green summer grass and a few big trees serve as a stage for neighbors turned actors. The play tells the story of how two neighbors fought against a proposed development in a small public lot back in 2019. Did you know that extreme heat is the number one cause of weather-related deaths here in the city of Boston and in the United States? That's Isaiah Briggs, one of the actors from the community. Heat is already disproportionately impacting Dorchester, a problem green space can help alleviate. Jeronzi Harris is a local resident and playwright. She spent a year as an artist in residence with the city of Boston to develop this play. I think the climate conversation is dominated by academics, folks with a lot more resources and time than people in our community. And Harris says climate change isn't a standalone issue. Its effects are intertwined with gentrification, access to green space, and lack of affordable housing. She hopes the play spurs more environmental justice activism in the neighborhood. Serenia Sethananthan, the play's stage manager, got the message. A green space near her house is slated to be developed. We've been trying to get neighbors together to share about, like, hey, what are our concerns, what are our questions, um, to really be able to share our voices and say that we matter, the people who live here matter. She and other residents say the play helped them put into words the climate challenges they are experiencing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Dorchester weather will be performed outdoors at the corner of Norfolk Street and Woodrow Avenue in Dorchester this evening, starting at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. Getting ready for the holiday weekend is getting more expensive than ever. A new report says greedflation may be a big reason. That word is greedflation. We'll explain in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, so check back as you end your day. Pretty pleasant out there right now, still on the sticky side. Look for partly cloudy skies. It should be dry overnight tonight in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, the first day of July, we should wake up to clouds, but see sunshine breakthrough by the afternoon, about 80 degrees for a high. And for Sunday, heavy on the clouds, still right about 80. This is WBUR. It's 549. When you make art for a long period of time, you learn to appreciate the beginnings because they led you to where you are now. Jenny Lewis takes stock and talks about a very personal and optimistic new album. Also, affirmative action, protests in France, and lots more. 
Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Before Bob the Drag Queen starred on the HBO makeover show, We're Here. This is my drag daughter. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. I'm your mom now. Before he had nearly 3 million followers on TikTok or a hit podcast. My name is Bob the Drag Queen. And I'm Money Exchange. And this is Sibling Rivalry. Before Bob won season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. America's next drag superstar is... Bob the Drag Queen. Before all of that, Bob the Drag Queen was buying $10 bags full of fabric scraps, hoping to find something inside worth sewing into an outfit. It was just the ends of the bolts. Just whatever happened you couldn't to be in look, the bag. You couldn't look in the bag first. It's <laughs> they would just bring out a bag, and you'd give them $10. It's then, like storage wars where you bid on the storage container yeah. not knowing what's inside. And sometimes but it's fabric. You, sometimes it's you get a great bag. I mean, I once got like so much of this like blue crushed velvet paisley, which sounds horrible, <laughs> but it was actually really fierce. In New York's garment district, we met up with Bob the Drag Queen at Spandex House. Shelves lined the walls from floor to ceiling with rolls of fabric in dizzying colors and patterns. Sparkles, polka dots, animal prints, neon. This is a store that I've uh, shopped at. I don't want to over-exaggerate, but a lot of times, dozens of times. Like, what year would you say was the first time you set foot in here? Probably 2009. Uh-huh. Yeah. And take us back to that Bob the Drag Queen. I wanted custom clothes, but I couldn't afford any. I could afford fabric, though. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And uh, I know that if you want custom clothing and you can't afford it, then you'd better learn how to make it. Friends taught him that if he could sew fabric into a tube, then he could make pretty much anything. If you just make a tube... You can make a cat suit, you can make a gown, you can make a cocktail dress, you can make a leotard, and it's just one seam up the back. These days, professionals make Bob's outfits, and he gets recognized on the street, even out of drag. Not that he's subtle. He's tall, even without the black platform boots he's paired with a denim jumpsuit on this day. I love you, Bob. Oh, thank you, baby. Thank you. Mimi West clocks him immediately. Mimi's a costume designer and eager to collab. Feathers, stones, yeah, and dance opulence. Dance team, opulence. I love anything with feathers and stones. Bob says, cool, let me follow you on Instagram. And then a horrific discovery. Mimi West is not following Bob the drag queen. High drama. It don't say follow back. It don't say follow back. Well, let's see who you are following. Who are you following? You're following Monet and Trixie, but not me. This is. But you know, they make amends and start discussing looks. Bob has a vision. I want a high-waisted maxi skirt with a matching button-up top. With collar? Bob's yeah, career collar. has grown Very alongside the popularity of drag in the U.S., yeah. and with it, a conservative backlash that has also grown exponentially, as more states pass laws that ban gender nonconformity. Bob has seen that backlash firsthand filming the show We're Here. Hi, I'm Bob. Nice to meet you. May I read your sign? Yes. Nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Yes, and that's the Bible, as I know you know. Well, that's an assumption. On the show, Bob and two other drag queens go to small towns and put on a show with locals who get fabulous drag makeovers. And sometimes the town isn't excited about it. Which doesn't shock me because I grew up in small towns. So I'm like, yeah, that happens. Obviously that happens to people. What has shocked him is the thriving queer community he's found where he wasn't expecting it. Like thriving. 
drag scene. Like Twin Falls, Idaho had like a bustling drag scene. And what do you make of that? Well, I think that it shows that there's a, a desire to, to not feel alone. It shows that, um, you know, when you're in these places, when you don't see anyone like yourself and you feel lonely, you feel by yourself, you feel like you're the only one in the world who is like you. When you find one other person, you, you do not let them go. Do you think drag is an inherently political act? To a degree, yeah. I think it's forced to be political, whether the person themselves feels political or not. Doing drag is now a political issue because I guess people think there's some agenda with drag queens. There's no, I mean, the only thing on the drag agenda is brunch on Sundays. Like, there's no plan or plot to reach people's children or anything. Most drag queens don't even want to be around, be around kids. <laughs> like, I do a drag show at Barracuda, not at Jimboree. You know what I mean? <laughs> By this point, we'd relocated to Bryant Park, where we were sitting at a cafe table. And Bob told me, this is another place he has history. You know, I got arrested right there, right on 42nd Street. And the Bryant. photo is the cover of your EP. Yeah, literally a one minute walk from where we're sitting right now. Black and proud everywhere that we go. Say it loud, let them haters know. That EP is called Gay Bars with a Z. This is one of the singles, Black. The cover photo is a Polaroid mugshot. Bob the Drag Queen was with a group protesting for marriage equality about a decade ago, as he says, blocking traffic and causing a scene. That's me, under arrest. I pull up the image and ask Bob to describe the photo. What I'm looking at is a picture of me, and I've seen it a thousand times, I don't even need to look at it. So I'm wearing a red wig, a red afro, I'm wearing a vest, a tie, a leopard print fur uh, shawl, from H&M, um, what you can't see in the photo is that I have- <laughs> You brand name dropping H&M on NPR. Well, it's what I was wearing. You asked me to describe it, <laughs> and it seems important to the story. <laughs> what you can't see is that I didn't know how long, I didn't know how long I'd be in, in jail for. So what you can't see is that I have, my breasts are made of cashews. <laughs> you brought the snacks. I have a bagel under my wig. <laughs> oh my God. And I have a cliff bar underneath each hip pad. You are prepared. Yes. That's okay. incredible. I did not stay in jail long enough to use any of that. Bob was originally scheduled to join Madonna on a world tour this summer before health problems forced the pop star to postpone. One stop on that tour was Nashville. A judge recently ruled that Tennessee's law banning some drag performances was unconstitutional. But I asked Bob how he felt about doing drag on one of the largest stages in a state that had tried to ban it. He said he'll come prepared. There might be a bagel are under you, my wig. Are you <laughs> going to be on stage with Madonna in Nashville with, with cashews? cashews? <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. You never know. <laughs> but being on stage in, you know, I think that it's important for queer people in Nashville, especially young ones or people who are afraid in general, to see that, like, it's okay to go forward. It's okay to not be afraid. It's okay to be seen. They, I feel like there's a lot of laws that want us to hide or go back into the closet or just stop existing in public. For some people, the existence of queer people in public is offensive. And quite frankly, I find that offensive. Bob the Drag Queen, what a pleasure to meet and talk with you and visit some of your old haunts. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. I still haunt these places a little bit. <laughs> if you listen closely, you'll hear them whisper. Bob the Drag Queen. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at totalwine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. It is a beautiful start to the nighttime, a pleasant Friday with sunshine right now, but partly cloudy skies moving in tonight, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, the 1st of July, we should wake up to clouds, but then sunshine later on, 80 for a high. Lots of clouds on Sunday, highs again right around 80. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Tens of millions of Americans are left looking for help in paying off their student loans as the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down President Biden's plan to forgive the debt. Biden says he's not giving up the fight. We'll have five takeaways for borrowers and the country coming up on this Friday, June 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, are corporations to blame for our current inflation? And is higher inflation linked to higher profit margins? A new study aims to find out. And a new documentary explores the lives and treatment of intersex people. People with variations in their sex characteristics are often targeted for very harmful medical interventions. We'll hear from the director and a featured activist in the documentary, Everybody. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are ahead. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the Supreme Court's decision striking down his student loan forgiveness plan was wrong. But as NPR's Tamara Keith explains, the Biden administration is trying different ways to help student loan borrowers. Biden said his administration would try an alternative path to forgive student debt, though administration officials say the process will take a long time and could still face a legal challenge. But immediately, the president said his administration was modifying what's known as the income-based repayment program. It's now the most generous repayment program ever. No one with an undergraduate loan today or in the future whether from a community college or a four-year college, will have to pay more than 5% of the disposable income. Student loan payments that have been on hold are resuming soon, but the administration is giving borrowers a grace period of a year where if they don't make their payments, they won't be reported to credit rating agencies. Tamara Keith, 
NPR News, the White House. The conservative majority on the Supreme Court in another ruling has decided a Christian graphic artist who designs wedding sites can refuse to work with same-sex couples. The case involving designer Lori Smith, who challenged a Colorado law barring discrimination based on sexual orientation, race, or gender. Writing for the conservative majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch said the First Amendment envisions a nation where people, quote, are free to think and speak as they wish. The ruling is a defeat for LGBTQ rights. The State Department report looking at the chaotic U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan two years ago says the Biden and Trump administrations both share blame for the crisis, in which 13 American service personnel and dozens of Afghans were killed. NPR's Jackie Northam reports the so-called after-action review looked at the 2021 American departure. The report says Presidents Trump and Biden did not grasp the serious consequences a U.S. military pullout would have for Afghanistan. Both failed to understand the worst-case scenario, it says, noting the Biden administration made serious missteps once the Taliban took over. Although an evacuation had been in the works for some time, the report says it was unclear who at the State Department was in charge. Also, that routine turnover had left the U.S. Embassy short-staffed, and workers there trying to help with the evacuation weren't given guidance. The report sharply criticized handling of events at the airport where thousands of people had gathered hoping to be evacuated. In the end, more than 120,000 people were airlifted to safety. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Device maker Apple's closed the trading week as the first publicly traded company to reach a $3 trillion market cap. Valuation is just the latest milestone for the company that's seen its value skyrocket. Apple's one of a handful of companies, including software maker Microsoft and chip maker NVIDIA, that helped drive the S&P 500 up more than 15% this year. On Wall Street, stocks closed higher. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The pollution from the wildfires in Canada is spreading across most of Massachusetts. The State Department of Environmental Protection says the air will be dangerous everywhere except for the Cape and Islands. People most at risk include those with asthma, other lung disease, or heart disease. They're being urged to watch for shortness of breath or coughing and to limit their time outside. The air quality alert begins tonight at midnight and will run through tomorrow. If you're driving out of Boston for the long holiday weekend, you're being warned about the return home. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation wants you to factor in the Sumner Tunnel closure in your 4th of July plans. WBR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez explains people returning to the city could be taken by surprise. Repair work on the Sumner Tunnel into Boston begins July 5th. MassDOT's Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says drivers heading home from 4th of July celebrations may be impacted as crews get to work. One minute past midnight, they will roll in, they'll uh, initiate the closure, they'll move their crews, their equipment, and their materials into the tunnel. Gulliver has advice for drivers hoping to avoid congestion. I'd say if you're out for the 4th of July at wherever you're going, make sure you're home before midnight. The Sumner will be closed through the end of August. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The Lynn Ferry is up and running again, and MBTA officials say it's a good option for commuters on the North Shore as the Sumner Tunnel shuts down for the summer starting next week. There was a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the ferry's relaunch today. Lynn resident Sunil Gulab says the ferry makes his commute manageable. It was just pleasurable, comfortable. The boat is new. The boat is clean. It's quicker than if you were caught in traffic. It does drop you off right next to a T-sub. 
The Lynn Ferry will have 10 trips each weekday from the Blossom Street Pier in Lynn to Long Wharf in Boston. The ride will take about 30 minutes each way. Local reaction now to the Supreme Court's decision to strike down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. 39-year-old Megan Walsh of Dorchester still has $20,000 to pay off her graduate student loans. She was counting on the Biden program to forgive the balance. I've seen the impact that this has had on on my generation of friends. A lot of us were the first people in our family to go to college. Um, We didn't have family support. And, you know, it's really stunted our ability to make different choices about our lives. Governor Maura Healey says her administration will continue to make higher ed in the state more affordable. And a Fall River police officer is facing a charge of child pornography in connection with allegations that he had an inappropriate relationship with a 17-year-old. The police department said today that it put Officer Michael Morin under arrest. The Bristol County DA's office says Morin pleaded not guilty to possession of child pornography. The officer has been placed on paid administrative leave. 78 degrees in the Boston area overnight tonight, partly cloudy and dry in the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, we should have clouds in the morning, but the sunshine breaking through later on. Highs around 80 degrees, still around 80 for Sunday. Just a lot of clouds here as well. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. By a 6-3 to three vote, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that President Biden does not have the power to erase the student loan debts of tens of millions of Americans. The opinion comes on the last day of the court's current term, and it will be unpacked, debated, and protested for the foreseeable future. But for federal student loan borrowers, the message is now clear. Their debts will not be erased, and by summer's end, they'll be expected to begin to repay them. NPR's Corey Turner is on the line. And Corey, let's start with exactly what the court said and why. Yeah, Juana, so this case was all about whether President Biden and his education secretary have the authority to erase between ten dollars and $20,000 in federal student loan debt per borrower for millions of borrowers. A nonpartisan estimate pegged that cost of the plan at more than $400 billion. The Biden administration argued Congress had passed a law in the wake of the 9-11 attacks called the HEROES Act that gave the education secretary pretty clear and broad power to modify or waive student loan rules in times of emergency. And they argued pandemics and emergency. Earlier today, though, six justices, the court's conservative supermajority, agreed with the plan's conservative critics, saying the Constitution is clear. Congress controls spending, not the president. I spoke with the Republican chair of the House Education Committee, Virginia Fox, who told me much the same, that if Congress wanted to do this kind of wholesale debt relief program, it would have. But President Biden can't. I think what he has done is totally illegal. I think it's unconstitutional. And so I believe that the Supreme Court is absolutely right. And Corey, what about the dissenting justices? What did they have to say? Yeah, so on the court itself, Justice Elena Kagan wrote the dissent and took issue with a few things. But interestingly, she really went after the court's conservative majority, saying the plaintiffs in this case had not demonstrated what is really fundamental in these legal circles, that they would be harmed by the student relief plan. Kagan writes, without having demonstrated that actual harm, quote, no proper party is before the court. And a court acting like a court 
would have said as much and stopped. And I can tell you, Juana, Democrats and borrower advocates are all crying foul, accusing the court of its own kind of activism. Here's Persis Yu. She's with the Student Borrower Protection Center. It's really tragic that student loan borrowers have been stuck in this position as political pawns and now are victims to a politicized court that is willing to jeopardize their financial security for political gain. And Corey, President Biden spoke earlier today about the decision. How has he been responding? Yeah, so he called the decision unthinkable. He said the fight isn't over. He also elaborated on that. He said the Ed Department is going to explore the secretary's authority to erase student debt under a different law, the Higher Education Act, known as the HEA. Though I, I want to be really careful here. Biden himself warned this could take a while. But also that path was available before all this. And the administration chose to use the HEROES Act instead because it was quicker. But also, I have heard from sources because they believed it made a stronger case. And so if that didn't work, it is hard to imagine this new course faring any better with this court. I do want to say concretely, Biden mentioned one thing that will absolutely help current and former, that will absolutely help current and future borrowers. It's a new repayment plan or sort of a, a rewrite of an old repayment plan that would limit monthly payments to 5% of a borrower's discretionary income and lead to cancellation after 20 years of payments. This would be an incredibly generous plan, though it is still in the regulatory phase and not quite yet available to borrowers. And Corey, what about the people impacted by this, people who are now looking at having to pay back those student loans? What have you heard from them? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Juan, I've been talking with borrowers all throughout this payment pause, but I want to highlight one in particular I've been talking to quite a bit off and on for several months now. His name is Kurt Panton. He's got a new baby uh, and lots of old student debt. And a different decision from the court today would have zeroed out his remaining $20,000 balance. Here he is. I feel like it's back to business as usual. What else can I do? Go back to paying the student loan that I have been paying for 20 plus years. You know, Kurt's challenge, as with so many borrowers, is accruing interest just makes it really hard to keep up, even as he has been steady as a clock making his payments. And I think you can hear it in his voice. It's really worth noting, Juana, whatever you think of today's decision or President Biden's plan politically or philosophically, student loan debt is absolutely weighing on a lot of people. And today this is going to be a hard day for many of them. NPR's Corey Turner, thank you. You're welcome. France is bracing for a weekend of unrest. People have been rioting over the killing of a 17-year-old youth of Algerian descent. The death during a traffic stop in a Paris suburb has revived grievances about policing and race relations. Anger has rippled across France, which has seen three nights of violence. People have set cars and buildings on fire. Nearly 1,000 people have been arrested and 45,000 police have been mobilized. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley joins us from France. And Eleanor, remind us of the tragic events leading to these protests. Yeah, Ari, well, a young guy named Niall M, they're not giving his last name, in the suburb a city of Nanterre, was stopped at a routine traffic stop and he got shot. And the police originally said that he tried to drive at them with his car, but a video quickly surfaced showing the police officer firing point-blank range into the car. So that changed everything. The policeman has now been arrested and has been charged with voluntary homicide. He's apologized to the family, but it has set off a huge wave of anger across France. We've had three nights of rioting 
you know, as you said, cars and buildings set on fire. There have been 875 arrests, 250 police officers injured. Major events have been canceled. Uh, this evening, the Interior Minister called for a nationwide halt to all bus and tram service from 9 o'clock this evening. What has the response been from President Emmanuel Macron and other government leaders? Well, Macron has unequivocally condemned the policeman's actions. Even Francis Hardline, pro-law and order interior minister, said he was stunned by the video. Um, but Macron said it is not a reason to wreck public buildings like town halls and schools and police stations. Today, Macron cut short a meeting at the EU in Brussels to return to Paris, where he held a crisis meeting. Here he is speaking. He says the social networks also bear responsibility. Some of the rioters are very young, Ari, as young as 14, yet they're very well organized. Macron said apps like TikTok and Snapchat have not only been helping them organize, but have been instilling them with a sort of militaristic purpose. And he said these, a lot of these young people, it's as if they're living out their intoxication with video games in the real streets. He also called on parents to take responsibility for their kids and keep them home. Uh, the far right has been calling on Macron to declare a state of emergency. He's not done that, but tonight... Uh, the French government announced 45,000 more police on the streets. And today, the UN called on France to address deep issues of racism and discrimination in its law enforcement, though the French government has rejected those accusations and says they're unfounded. What has the family of Nahel said about events? Well, Nahel's mother, Munya, whose name is, last name is not given either, she actually did an interview on television. She says she doesn't blame the system the law enforcement as a whole for her son's death. She says she blames one man. Here she is. She says, I blame one man who saw a young Arab boy and wanted to kill him. Nahel's funeral will be held tomorrow. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley, thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. Inflation has dropped sharply from what it was a year ago this time, but prices are still rising at roughly double the rate they did before the pandemic. So who's to blame for these price hikes? Many fingers are pointed at one villain, corporations. Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, spoke with an economist who went looking for evidence. Chris Conlon is by no means a big business sycophant. He never set out to give corporations a pass. I'm very prone to think <laughs> firms are colluding and doing all kinds of things they shouldn't be doing. A lot of my work is trying to figure out, like, can we use data to figure out when firms are trying to do terrible things to rip off consumers? Chris is an economics professor at New York University. He studies how businesses make decisions, like pricing their products and competing with other companies. And earlier this year, Chris was tapped by somebody at the American Economic Association. Basically, someone came up to us and said, hey, uh, can you tell us something about what's happening with rising markups and what it meant in the last few years? So Chris and his co-authors set out to answer this question. If you've got prices rising higher in a given industry, does that correlate with corporations raising their markups? In other words, is higher inflation linked to higher profit margins? Chris and his co-authors built on a data set that estimated the markups for over 6,000 publicly traded companies over the last several decades. And then they zoomed in around the recent inflation episode. We expected to see, at least in some industries or some sectors, at least some correlation between the people who were increasing profit margins and the places that prices seemed to be going up the fastest. We were kind of surprised when we just found almost no correlation whatsoever. 
So prices have gone up around the economy, more in some industries, less in others. Some companies got more profitable, some got less profitable. Just because cornflakes or Cheerios went up in price didn't mean that Kellogg's or General Mills were necessarily more profitable. Now, there is an asterisk here around the middle of 2021 and 2022. What we did see in 2021 was we did see a bump in profits across the board when you look at all corporations taken together. A time when we also started to see a rise in inflation. If you're a firm and you know inflation is coming, you want to raise your prices sooner rather than later. Because if you raise your prices sooner, you can make a quick buck. And if you wait too long, if you wait for your costs to go up, now you're going to be the one firm, you know, why are your earnings so bad? Everybody else made a ton of money. And the answer is, well, we were kind of slow to react. That's the last thing you want to say as a CEO. So once you think the inflation party has started, you kind of want to get to the front of the line. But then costs started to catch up with businesses in 2022. And Chris says corporate profits have been declining since about June of last year. Now, if you've been paying attention to inflation, Inflation is still pretty high. It's still sort of unacceptably high for the Federal Reserve. It's much higher than the target of 2%. Way higher than the target of 2%. And so, you know, the idea that kind of are these higher profits causing inflation, we know they both went up in 2021. But in 2022 and 2023, it looks like they've started to decouple. Chris says there's another reason prices can go up more than costs, an increase in demand, which, it could be argued, points the finger back to you and me. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, as air travel ramps up, air traffic controllers are essential and the FAA is facing a shortage. How a new FAA funding bill might address the issue, coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. Some big gains for this last trading day of the first half of the year. The Dow rose eight-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly one and a quarter percent, and the Nasdaq gained nearly one and a half percent to notch its best start to a year in four decades. The Steamship Authority has received its first fleet of electric buses. The three EVs will transport customers to ferry terminals in Hyannis and Woods Hole. The buses are expected to start operating in Falmouth and Hyannis in mid-July. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Comedian Bethany Van Delft hosts the Moth Story Slam on Tuesday, July 11th at City Space. Tell a story based on the theme sweat or just enjoy the show. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. WBUR supporters include Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. 
visit babson.edu MBA. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Since the day he was born, Sean Saifa-Wall's identity has been under a microscope. We live in a society that is so binary. So as an intersex person, where do I fit? Wall is one of three intersex activists featured in director Julie Cohen's new documentary called Every Body. It looks at the lives and treatment of people whose bodies don't fit into the male-female sex binary. Here's a clip from the film of Wall talking with River Gallo and Alicia Roth-Weigel. They told my mom, you have a child that we feel is abnormal. And this body was a problem that needed to be fixed. Fixed, fixed and that I should never tell anyone about it. Well, I'm joined now by Sean Saifa-Wall and Julie Cohen. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Great to be here. So Saifa, I want to start with you because I think there might be a lot of people who don't totally understand what the word intersex actually means. How would you define it? Yeah, so I like to think of intersex as sex characteristics. And, you know, when I say sex characteristics, I mean hormones like testosterone or estrogen, uh, chromosomes like XX, XY, X, XXY, internal organs like ovaries, testes, ovotestes, and external organs like penis, vagina. So we all have sex characteristics. Um, but um, people with variations in their sex characteristics are often targeted by the medical establishment and by practitioners for um what sometimes are very harmful medical interventions. Right. And we're going to talk about that. But Julie, what led you to make this documentary about the lives of intersex people? Yeah, well, you know, taking a look at the intersex activist movement right now, this is just a blooming, blossoming movement of activists. It's so due to get attention and to, you know, for us all to be considering the things that they're fighting for. Well, Saifa, I want to return to you because I want to hear more about your story. You were born and raised in the Bronx. At what moment in your life did you start to fully understand that you were intersex? So although I was, you know, born with a small phallus and undescended testes, I was assigned female at birth, and they were hoping that my mom would do really invasive medical surgery to sort of align my body with sort of social expectations of female, right? And even though they had done the surgery, I still didn't necessarily feel more like a girl. I didn't fit in. So I went to college, and one night I'm sort of at my student job, and I type in testicular feminization syndrome. And then this updated term, androgen insensitivity syndrome, came up, and I sort of looked at the the characteristics of AIS, and I was literally in shock because I was like, that's me. That's my body. And all of the doctors who I had spoken to or interacted with up until that point did not tell me the truth about my body. Can you tell us when you were born, how the doctor advised your mother? So when I was born, 
they made the recommendation to do a gonadectomy, but they also wanted to do a genital surgery. And the pediatric endocrinology department at Columbia Presbyterian literally hounded my mom for two weeks wanting to do surgery. And just something about it didn't feel right to my mom. And she's like, why are they so persistent about doing the surgery? And so my mom just raised me just to be me. Well, eventually your mother did consent to surgery because she was told falsely by these doctors that your gonads were cancerous? Yeah, so um, when I was around 11 or 12, I, when I went to the doctor, he was just like, this surgery should have been done in infancy. And then he also told my mom, these gonads are cancerous and they have to be removed. And when my mom heard cancer, mm -hmm. she consented to the procedure being done. One of the most surprising things I learned in this documentary is that starting in like the 1960s, there was really only one voice, one authority shaping people's understanding of what it meant to be intersex, at least in the Western world. And that quote unquote authority was Dr. John Money. Julie, can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Money's role in shaping not only just the medical community's understanding, but the whole public's understanding of intersex people? Yeah, Dr. Money was a psychologist and sex researcher at Johns Hopkins. He had a theory that a child's gender was malleable until age two and a half or three and claimed that he had proved this theory with the case of two twin boys, one of whom was badly injured in a failed circumcision. Um, the baby under Dr. Money's direction was raised as a girl and castrated. And Dr. Money did a study in which Money claimed that the boy was successfully raised as a girl. That wasn't true, but the study spread all around the country and then was picked up on by all kinds of journals and medical textbooks. That study was debunked, but the debunking didn't spread widely enough. And there are still hospitals in the U.S where surgeries are done based on this unproven and, in fact, debunked science. Right. This study perpetuated the practice of performing non-consensual procedures right. on other children. Right. Saifa, we saw in this documentary that it wasn't only you, like Alicia and River, all had non-consensual surgeries performed to quote unquote, correct their anatomy, to align more closely with being binary. How common is that experience among intersex people to have these non-consensual procedures done on them? You know, I think intersex experiences are not monolithic. I think for a long time, at least in the US, the people who have been most vocal are the people who have been harmed. But that does not represent the breadth of experiences of people born with intersex variations. How did understanding that you are intersex, how did that affect your own understanding of your gender identity? Yeah, I think for me, it wasn't a question of like gender identity. I think probably what sort of switched something on for me was when I was sort of 24. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, I had a friend at the time who was um, female to male transgender. And he asked me a question. He was like, can you see yourself aging as an older woman? 
And I was like, no. And I think that was sort of the start of me sort of being like, well, what do I need to do to sort of feel more of myself? Um, And I think that's when I started to seek out hormones and surgery that I would do for myself, right? To affirm myself. That sort of confirmed how I felt inside. That was activist Sean Seifewall and Julie Cohen, director of the new documentary called Every Body. It comes out today. Thank you to both of you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Elsa. Thanks, Elsa. This is NPR News. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor Karen Allen revealed how Steven Spielberg cast her in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He said, how well can you spit? And I just found it coming out of my mouth. I said, oh, I can hawk him with the best. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. On this week's show, Jewish matchmaker Aliza Ben Shalom explains how to cast your life's co-star. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.